Good morning, everyone. Well, let me open us up with a word of prayer, and we will jump right in. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday where we can be together with your people, Lord. We can fellowship with one another and encourage one another and share our prayer requests with one another. And Lord, we can be challenged by your word. So I pray uh, this morning that we will think carefully about the lessons that Pastor Steve taught us and the importance of believing you, believing and acting on your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we return to our study of Joel. Lord, I will communicate to the class what I've already communicated to you. This is hard for me to teach. It's a challenging book. But Lord, your spirit guides us and you want us to walk in the truth. So I pray that you give me clarity and the ability to explain these things beyond my natural talents. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am glad to finally be back. It was very good to see Pastor Steve this morning. I, I love to preach, not though under those circumstances, and, and it threw my schedule off considerably because Steve was taking it day by day and he wouldn't know until the end of the week if he wasn't preaching. So I'm very appreciative of John Schroeder stepping in a couple of times with last minute requests on my half because as soon as I heard I was preaching, I would reach out to John and say, hey, can you help me out? Um, so I gave a, a summary of all of Joel three weeks ago thinking the following week we would dive right in, but it's been a bit of time. But that's where we are. We're in Joel chapter 2. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and do so. And we are going to get into beginning to walk verse by verse through chapter 2. But as I began to study, I, I always want to provide a little context, not reteach the summary. But as we recall, Joel was tasked by God to write to the nation of Israel, really what we refer to biblically as the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, and he was tasked with calling them to turn from their sin. And God placed it upon his heart to do so in the context of a natural calamity that was actually a supernatural calamity, a locust plague that absolutely destroyed the economy, destroyed everything, but as you read through the book and as we covered, we see that it was actually God that sent the locust. These things didn't just happen. It was God who was judging his people. And we don't know exactly when the book was written, but it was sometime after the kingdom was divided and before the nation of Judah was permanently taken into captivity, which the captivity occurred around 586 B.C. So we, we're talking easily a few thousand years ago and then some when all of these events transpired. And God's purpose was to have Joel warn the people. They needed to repent. They needed to turn back to God because their life of leisure, their life of worship, everything was destroyed. In fact, as we recall from that review of chapter 1, they couldn't even worship anymore because what they needed for the daily sacrifices the olive oil and the flour and the wine, it's all gone. So the people knew God's hand had been removed from them. Actually, I take that back. Joel was telling the people that God's hand of blessing had been removed from them. They were a bit hard-hearted. 
And it was all really culminating in chapter 1, verse 15, where Joel introduces what really is sort of the theme of the entire book. It's a theme that runs through everything. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. That's a critical concept because we're going to jump into chapter 2 and we're going to see the same reference to the day of the Lord. And as I developed before and as I elaborated before, the Jewish people to whom the letter was written had a conception of the day of the Lord that wasn't entirely wrong, but their conception wasn't complete. It's a common theme in Scripture going all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament in the books that Moses wrote. That one day, God is going to set everything straight. We know that sin corrupted the world. God chose a people through Abraham out of the world. And yet those people continually sinned against him. And eventually, God will set everything straight. And the enemies of Israel, they're God's enemies... They'll pay for their rejection of God. And so there was a sense in which the Jewish people knew that, and so they could look at all the people that had picked on them over the years, be it the Egyptians or the Philistines, or looking around at the Syrians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, whoever was bothering them at the moment, they could look and say, one day you're going to get it. You're bullying me now. One day my big brother, my dad's going to get you, which is God. That's how they viewed the day of the Lord, but they missed something. Yes, God's going to settle accounts on that day. His enemies will be punished. What they didn't realize was that in their rejection of him, they had become his enemies. In Amos, and I read this before, but in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, Amos understood this as he was writing to the northern kingdom, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? In other words, everybody's thinking, yeah, let's you get them, God. Continuing on, Amos says, it will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? In other words... The Jewish people had missed the component of the day of the Lord, which was that it would also be their judgment if they didn't repent. They thought the day of the Lord would be their vindication. God sent prophets to say, check your heart. Because the day of the Lord will be your judgment as well. So that's the backdrop for everything we see And in chapter 1, when we covered all the details of the locust that wiped out everything, what the prophet Joel was saying was, look, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You'll talk about it for generations, and yet it's nothing compared to God's judgment on you if you don't turn. Repentance is what it's all about. And chapter 2 continues that thing. So I'm going to present the material in chapter 2 and everything is pointing to repentance. That's ultimately the call. But as we start going through the text, we're going to see very quickly, or at least I've seen, I hope I can communicate to you, it's a very challenging text. It's not cut and dry what the meaning is. In fact, there are nuances and difficulties in the text that make it very hard 
to be dogmatic about certain things. But the overarching lesson is understandable, and that's what I want to convey. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through the text. I'm going to read the first 11 verses this morning, because that's the first section. And I'm going to explain to you, I don't normally go through interpretation things in great detail, but the two main viewpoints of what he's talking about. Because in this context, it's one of those situations where a lot of people line up on both sides. But I hope in doing that, that it won't be confusing for us, but rather we'll see that whichever one of the viewpoints is more accurate than the other, or perhaps they both go together, the reality is the message is the same. So I'm going to read these 11 verses and then we're going to look into it in the context of remembering that this is all pointing ultimately to repentance. So follow along as I read beginning in Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses... So they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They they run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. Nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? This is actually, as we go through it, and it's going to take us a few weeks to get through this, but it's obvious, even from a cursory reading, something bad is happening. An army of some sort is upon the people, and God is behind it, and the destruction and the ruin is going to be incomprehensible. But here's the question, and it's a broader question, that I don't ever want to lose sight of the forest for the trees, but the broader question is, what is the writer talking about? And it really comes down to two major arguments, and if you read long enough, you'll see that the arguments sometimes overlap, but there's two views on what's happening in chapter 2. The first view is this. The locusts have destroyed everything in chapter 1. That's happened. In chapter 2... Even though it's talking along the lines of locusts, saying that they're like horses, like war horses, it's really talking about a human army. In other words, it's a future judgment. 
So the locust destroyed you, but God's going to send another army, and that other army is going to do great damage. And in that view, the locusts of chapter 1 are really the imagery used in chapter 2 to point to a future real army. There's a second view, though, that says chapter 1 and chapter 2 are describing the same thing. In other words, the locusts that were swarming in in chapter 1, the writer's talking about them in chapter 2, but he's just talking about them in a slightly different detail, slightly more context. And when you read the arguments for both, it can get very confusing because they both make very good points. In fact, in some respects in my mind, as I've gone through this, I've been absolutely certain that each viewpoint was right back and forth over and over. (laughs) Because I read and it's like, makes sense. And so there's a part of me that thinks, although I'm still studying and I'm still struggling, that whichever viewpoint, they all point to the very same thing from our context. There's merits, the arguments go back and forth. And as we go through the verses, I'll, I'll highlight some of that. I don't want to go too far off. But what we'll see is that whichever one is the case, they're both pointing to the same reality, which is God's judgment. Whether it's a reiteration of what the locusts have already done in greater detail, or whether it's a warning that a future army is coming, they both point the people to the same thing. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, And with fasting, weeping, and mourning, continuing the first part of verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments, now return to the Lord your God. That's the whole point of these 11 verses. They're pointing to a terrifying reality, something that either they were already experiencing or they would experience But the reality of the horrific circumstances were all pointing to the same thing. You've got to return to the Lord. That's just describing repentance. That change of heart that causes you to stop running away from God, but to turn towards God. It's not outward rituals. It's that inward heart change. That inward sorrow the mourning over sin that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes. As we go over weeks and talking to the details, and the details are important, they add illumination, what we need to remember is why any of this is here. Because judgment's coming. Repent. So as Joel is putting forth by God's design, these first 11 verses, we've already seen what is it pointing to. It's pointing to the call to repent, to return to the Lord in verse 12 and 13. So what Joel is doing in a sense, and I can't help but think like a lawyer, whether that's good or bad, you decide. But in a sense, Joel's presenting to them the evidence in the case he's making for repentance. He's showing them why they have to repent. So for my outline, imperfect as it is, and this is a hard section to outline, 
I'm just phrasing it as evidence making the case for repentance. Evidence making the case for repentance. And we're only going to start on the first point today. But the first point is this. The day of the Lord is approaching. The day of the Lord is approaching. Looking back at verse 1. There's a sense of urgency. You can imagine because the people who received this, it wasn't happening over many Sundays like we teach. They got it all at once. And he's pointing to them and he's saying this in the context of the utter devastation of everything around them. Their economy's destroyed. They can't worship in the temple. Everything's destroyed. And in the midst of all of that, where he's already said we've got to cry out to God and he's modeled crying out to God... He says this, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. In other words, God is stepping into the equation here. God's the one that's saying, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, my holy mountain. That's God. Now, as we go through the imagery, I can't help whether I would like to or not. I can't help but images come in my head that I try and see things. And if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies or the Hobbit movies, they have some big battle scenes where the armies are coming together. And generally, the weaker people are on the wall and they're afraid, they're scared. The imagery here is of a coming battle. And the idea is blow the trumpet, sound the alarm. Danger is on the way. But unlike Hollywood, this is real. This is true. This is happening. This is really facing God's people. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Zion is just Jerusalem. It's still there. It's where you are. And there's imagery here tied up with the idea of and sound alarm on my holy mountain that I missed multiple times reading it, but actually a commentary written by one of my seminary professors helped illuminate some of this. But it's all a warning. Throughout the Old Testament, there are references to trumpets doing things. For example, there's a situation in Numbers chapter 10 where Moses ordered, it was actually God, but Moses ordered building different trumpets And certain trumpets, when you sounded it, that would be when the people would know to get up and we're going to move to the next spot. But there also were trumpets that were warnings. Numbers 10, 9, for example. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. In fact, it was one of the duties... In the history of Israel, for the watchman who was on the wall who saw danger to alert people. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 6. Ezekiel 33, 1 to 6, we see this. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. In other words, he didn't 
Listen to the warning. Verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet, didn't take the warning, his blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity by his blood, I will require from the watchman's hand. So in the context of the history of Israel, they understood a warning like this. Blow the trumpet. They understand the responsibility of the person on the wall. He sees danger coming. It's his duty to say something. Let the people know what's happening. But with the way this is phrased, Joel's taking something by God's design that would be the familiar to the people, but it's a little bit different than a typical warning. Normally, the person on the edge of your boundaries is the one that first sees the coming army. They're on the wall. They're looking out. And they see in the distance the rumbling or whatever, and they say, oh, I see it coming. This alarm is being sounded from somewhere else. You blow a trumpet in Zion, and he says exactly where? On my holy mountain. Interesting, if you've had the privilege, some of us in this room were on the same trip with Pastor Steve in Israel. You can still see God's holy mountain. It's where the temple used to stand. Now, on TV, if you ever see a picture of Jerusalem, you see the big Muslim dome of the rock, the big golden dome. That's the holy mountain. That's where the temple was. That general geographic area. What's different, again, this idea came from my professor... Normally, it'd be the person on the outside sounding the alarm, but this alarm is being sounded from the temple. There's a sense, perhaps, in which the idea is it's too late for the other alarm because the danger is already on top of us. But there's another idea tied to what my holy mountain signified for the people. If I could go back in time, I would go to a few moments in history, and one of them would be when Solomon dedicated the first temple. When you read about how it was built and the gold and the magnificence, I can't even imagine what that would look like. It had to be just spectacular. It was so great that years later when Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt in some sense the temple, the older people that remembered the first one were crying because it was not the same. But God, of course, is the God of the universe. And originally, back in the days of Moses, there wasn't a temple, there was a tabernacle. It was picked up and torn down and it went with the people. But eventually God said, this is my place. And if you read some of the different prayers of Solomon in the dedication of the temple, it all had to do with, if, you, if your people turn their eyes to this place, listen, hear them. Second Chronicles 5, verses 11 and 14, talk about when the temple was being dedicated. 
Second Chronicles 5, beginning at verse 11. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jedathan, and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice, to praise and glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. God's holy mountain was the place where God chose for himself to make his glory known. It was God's temple, God's house. Now, of course, he didn't literally live there like we literally live there, but it was central to who he was that this is the place where his glory descended. So when Joel... Is saying, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. There's a sense in which he's warning about something coming, but there's another sense where when you turn the, heard the sound, you would turn to where God dwells. It's going to be terrifying, but even in the midst of the warning, it's a reminder that God's in all of this. Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. This is one of those times where I think of things and I don't have it in my notes. But if you recall from, we touched on it at times in the past in teaching through Hebrews, but pointing to the Old Testament, God's presence invokes terror. There's a certain terror involved in all of this that we'll read because of the fact that an army is coming of some sort that will destroy and is unstoppable and God's behind it. But that's the ultimate issue is God. If they don't repent, they'll be standing before the glory of God, the holiness of God, and they should tremble. They should fear. All of this is about God's coming judgment as summarized in its ultimate fulfillment on the day of the Lord when He comes to make right what has been destroyed by sin. Again, we're going to get into the details because God gives us the details. We don't neglect anything God puts there. But we always want to keep in mind the big picture. It's what helps me not get too frustrated when I struggle with the details is seeing the big picture. The big picture is something terrible is coming. You need to be alert. You need to wake up. Even his phraseology for the day of the Lord is coming. It's not speculative. It's not maybe. Unless you do this, it will come. No, it's coming no matter what. 
The issue is, will you be prepared when that day arrives? And he says it's near. How near? Well, every day it's closer than it was before. Now, here's one of the challenges for us. Because I'm going to tell you that the warning hasn't changed. That the day of the Lord is near. And the fact that the day of the Lord is near should inspire us and motivate us. And give us a purpose and give us a sense of urgency. Not fear if we're in Christ, but fear for all those we know that aren't in Christ yet. Because the day of the Lord is coming and it is near. This comes back to what Pastor Steve said this morning, except I didn't know he was going to say it when I was doing this. Do we believe God? The day of God's judgment is getting closer. We have to have the sense of urgency in how we live our lives that Joel was begging his people to have. But again, here's the problem. The warning that was being sounded then that the day of the Lord is coming would be my warning to you the day of the Lord is coming. It hasn't gotten here yet and so we can be complacent. It's been all these years, it still hasn't happened. So our complacency could be, well, we got time. Hadn't happened yet, won't happen tomorrow. But we don't know that. It's interesting, the fact that the day of the Lord hasn't come yet has been a source of consternation and a problem and even a source, according to the Scripture, of mocking of Christianity for believing in something that just isn't going to happen. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 3. It'd be familiar words to some of you, even if you didn't know where it was. You've heard something like this. But 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, the day of the Lord. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day... It's like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, for all to come to repentance. But for all to come to repentance. Peter, of course, wasn't putting out a literal scale, but in Peter's timelines been about three days since Joel talked and the fact that the day of the Lord hasn't come yet isn't an indication that we shouldn't be alert and sounding the alarm to the world that judgment is coming it's just an indication that God is patient towards unbelievers like he was patient towards us 
and it should be our desire and our motivation, in a sense, to blow the trumpet today, to sound the alarm today. One of the things that, and I've mentioned it before, that, that I like history, but if you look at history, you see the reality of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. They get fancier weapons and stuff, but sin is sin, and people do the same things over and over, and civilizations just sort of repeat themselves. And so as we go through this section of Scripture, and again, we're going to get into it in much more detail, but as we go through this section of Scripture... It'll be easy at certain points to think, oh, I, that, that looks like this event in history or that event in history. And that's fine. In fact, some of the arguments about a particular viewpoint that this is a future army are looking back at the history of Israel when the Assyrian nation came in and wiped out the country. And they're reading backwards and saying, well, that's what Joel was talking about. But again, all scriptures inspired by God, every single word, that's why we're going to go through it in detail. They're all important. We should glean everything we can out of it. But I'm going to tell you, for all of that, the message to us is still going to be the same. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're just playing with Christianity, the message of Joel is repent, turn to God. It's not about externals, it's about your heart. Cry out to God for mercy because judgment is coming. And if you're saved, the message of Joel is to tell everybody you know, repent, turn to God, because judgment is coming. From our theological viewpoint, the rapture could occur at any moment. The day of the Lord could start. We've got to be ready, but for those of us in Christ, in a sense, we're the watchman on the wall. God's given us the message, God's given us the answer, and He's given us the task, not just pastors, but all of us, to share the truth of Jesus Christ. Because even with the depth of the depravity that seems to be consuming America and the rest of the world, God is still showing His patience towards us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So let me encourage you a couple of things as I wrap up today. Number one, I would appreciate your prayers very challenging um, at some point I'll have a separate conversation with Rig White for encouraging me to teach in the Old Testament because it's stretching me more than I like to be stretched but that's good for me hopefully it'll stretch all of us so pray for me to have wisdom because I really am I don't ever want to misrepresent what God says that's on me I want to be right so pray for me to have wisdom to get it right I know the Lord can work in spite of me. He does work in spite of me, but I want to tell you the truth. So give me wisdom. Pray for me to have wisdom from the Lord to find the truth in all of this. But I also pray for each one of us. When I introduced this book, I talked about the fact there's so many parallels 
and we can see you're grieved like I am. Even the last two weeks, what's happened is just terrific to see some of the things that are playing out from our leadership. Our lack of commitment to promises we've made. My point is, let's don't lose sight of the ultimate issue. Individual Americans, top to bottom, we need to pray that they'll repent. Because we see all of these manifestations of sin and foolishness Judgment is coming. The clouds are gathering. Our business isn't to fix all of that. We pray for God to fix that. Our business is to help the fellow unbelievers that we know to hear so they can turn to Christ. We shouldn't want any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Let me close our time this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for our hearts. I pray for my heart. Lord, even as I try and prepare to teach, I'm distracted by the news of the world. Lord, chaos is swirling around us, and yet you're still on your throne. We're still your people. We still have your promises. We still have your word. Lord, help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Even as there is a certainty that one day you will come and judge sin and unbelief. And it will be a horrific and dark day. We thank you, Lord, that on that day we're in Christ. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we don't have to fear that day in the same way because we're protected, we're safe. But Lord, every one of us here has friends and family that are in danger of judgment. Lord, some of us at different times and places have been faithless, forgive us. But some of us have been faithful at times to share your word. Lord, help us never stop. Lord, we do pray for the leadership of our country. Lord, we pray that you would work in the hearts of what would in essence be our kings. Steer them towards righteousness and justice. Lord, help all of our leadership and both parties repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help arrest the slide that America seems to be on into chaos and sin and depravity. But Lord, whatever the answer is to that prayer on your part, help us to be faithful to you in the midst of this unsettling time. Lord, help us Blow the trumpet as it were. Help us sound the alarm to point people to the Savior. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.